Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Sheik. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks. And today's hashtag, Jill's Pin, is one representing the Supreme Court of the United States, a topic we'll talk about today. But my pin says in it, when there are nine, which is what Ruth Bader Ginsburg said when asked when there would be enough female justices on the court. If you thought Donald Trump's legal woes are over, think again. We are exactly one week away from one of the most highly anticipated oral arguments this term. Colorado's effort to kick Donald Trump off the ballot under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which states that anyone who took an oath to support the Constitution thereafter engaged in an insurrection can't hold office. Depending on what the Supreme Court rules, Donald Trump could be kicked off the ballot across the nation or prevented from being inaugurated if on the ballot and elected. Today, we are going to talk to one of the most well-known and widely respected constitutional law scholars in the nation about what we should expect from the Supreme Court and much more. He is, of course, Lawrence Tribe, someone who I am honored to know and call a friend. It would take me days to go through all that Lawrence has accomplished, but he is most known for being a professor at Harvard Law School, where he has taught Jamie Raskin, Barack Obama, and many more. He has also argued an extraordinary 38 cases, I think it's actually 35 cases, in front of the Supreme Court, and has written over 115 books and articles on constitutional law, including a powerful one with conservative judge and legal scholar, uh, Ju judge Ludig, on why the 14th Amendment disqualifies Trump from holding office ever again. He is now frequently an, a contributor on MSNBC and other cable outlets. He is also, of course, uh, something that I just learned, of counsel to Kaplan, Hecker, and Fink, the law firm that successfully represented E. Jean Carroll in her rape and defamation civil suits against Donald Trump. And they also represent, and this is something I can't wait to ask him about, the Renew Democracy Initiative, which was partly founded by our former guest, uh, Kasparov, in its work on behalf of using Russia's assets that are frozen in this country to help Ukraine, to which I just say, wow, and congratulations, and so does Brisby. Um, I hope we have time to talk about all this with him. There is quite literally no one better than Lawrence Tribe for our conversation today, and we are honored to have him with us. Thank you for joining us today, Lawrence. Thank you, Jill. It's an honor to be with you. Thank you so much. You know, the, the student in me, I, I feel like I have to address you by saying Professor Tribe. So that's what I'm going to call you this episode. Um, but we want to start off um, by talking about the Colorado case and the upcoming oral arguments next week. You're nationally recognized constitutional scholar. Um, so we wanted to get your prediction on when and how the Supreme Court will decide um, the Colorado case regarding Trump being disqualified from the ballot under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And do you think it'll agree with you, Judge Ludig, and many others in including secretaries of state um, uh, from Colorado and Maine, uh, that Trump is prohibited from uh, holding a public office ever again? Well, I don't have a crystal ball, so I can tell you what I think the court should do. Yeah. But when it comes to predicting what it will do, I'm going to have to leave that to the, to the pundits. I don't think there's any doubt about what it should do. The Constitution couldn't be clearer. It says in the 14th Amendment, Section 3, that anyone who takes an oath to the Constitution and holds office and then 
engages in an insurrection against the Constitution cannot hold office again, any office, certainly including the presidency. That includes Donald Trump. He has even dropped his argument that what happened in the lead up to and on January 6th wasn't an insurrection. He no longer denies that. His arguments just don't hold any water. He's saying, I wasn't there. I didn't do it. Well, that's not a defense. It's not a defense that you weren't one of the foot soldiers. And there was a week-long trial in Colorado that established without really any doubt, but using a standard of proof by clear and convincing evidence that he engaged in that insurrection. He incited it, engaged in it, encouraged it, didn't do anything to stop it. Then his other argument is, well, I didn't take an oath to support the Constitution. That's a novel one. He says, I took an oath to preserve, protect, and defend it. Those are the words, but not support it. That's nonsense. Then he says, this language in the Constitution should be disregarded unless Congress passes a law to enforce it. There's no basis for that. So all of the arguments that he makes, and they are arguments that have been considered and debated throughout the country for the last year or so, um, all of those arguments are just with, without any merit. So what we're left with is the rather pathetic arguments by some pundits saying, well, maybe he's disqualified, but the Supreme Court dare not speak that truth because that would be disruptive. Well, of course it would be disruptive. Anything is disruptive these days having him run and then claim he won no matter what happens is pretty disruptive. And yet that's what he did in 2020. Another argument they make is that it's undemocratic. The voters should be able to decide. But should they be able to decide, Victor, whether you should be president? Maybe you'd be a great president, but you're not 35 yet. You're disqualified. Yeah. Yeah. Would they be able to decide that, uh, that Barack Obama or Maybe George W. Bush should be president. No, they're disqualified because they've run twice and they can't run again. It's even clearer that when someone shows that they don't believe in the Constitution, that they are willing to mount an insurrection against it, that they shouldn't get another bite on the apple. So all of the methods by which people have said that the Supreme Court can avoid doing the right thing, sort of fall away. I can't predict what they'll do, but I can certainly make one prediction. If they don't follow the Constitution, they're going to further undermine their credibility, and we need a credible, independent judicial branch. We're not going to have one if they let politics, rather than law, determine the outcome of this case. I I couldn't agree with you more on every one of the issues. The language one is certainly a difference without distinction when you say it was preserved, protect and defend. But I didn't say the word support. Well, you know, how can you not say that that's support? Um, and yet we are in a situation where we have states with conflicting outcomes. Illinois today, apparently, I just saw a headline, so I have not been able to find any reasons, but Illinois said, Um, that the Board of Elections doesn't have the power to keep them off the ballot. 
And so you have Illinois saying he has to stay on the ballot. You have the Colorado case only days away from oral argument. And I'm just, I want to sort of maybe probe a little about the arguments and you've laid out both his potential arguments and the ones that are saying that's all silly. But um, we have had Noah Bookbinder as a guest. He's of course the president of Crew, which is very much involved in the Colorado case and are making, you know, obviously great legal arguments. I'm just wondering if you have anything to add to them or if you've been advising them at all. I have been informally advising Noah and his entire legal team. And in fact, the lead advocate in the case, the counsel of record, Jason Murray, is a wonderful former student of mine who's did a brilliant job at the Supreme Court of Colorado level and did a wonderful job in the trial in Colorado. Um, It does seem to me unsurprising that other states would go in different directions. Some states don't have a law that allows the Secretary of State or some other official to make decisions about who belongs on the ballot. And anyway, a lot of the states that might otherwise have taken the lead have now taken a backseat to Colorado. Now that the U.S. Supreme Court has decided that it will resolve this matter in an argument to be held on February 8th, it's hardly surprising that a lot of states say, well, we're going to wait. And that's all they're doing. There is no other state, and I want to make this clear, no other state has conducted a trial, a detailed trial, with thousands of exhibits and dozens of witnesses, with full opportunity for Donald Trump and his team to make the case. No other state has conducted a trial on the question of whether Donald Trump engaged in insurrection against the Constitution of the United States by plotting to prevent the peaceful transfer of power to the lawful winner of the 2020 election. And then when those plots did not succeed, encouraging a violent armed mob to storm the Capitol and try to prevent the transfer of power. Indeed, they succeeded in delaying it. And but for some accidental moments We almost had a successful coup for the first time in the history of this country. We came incredibly close and we should feel enormously lucky, but we will not necessarily be lucky next time. If somehow Donald Trump manages, despite his disqualification, to wiggle his way onto the ballot and to make it, given the oddities of the electoral college, to become the next president, then he's not inclined to leave office voluntarily. He's made it clear, he has said explicitly last December, that he is prepared to terminate anything in the Constitution that stands in the way of his holding power. And I've heard people being interviewed on television, seemingly sane people, quite ordinary citizens saying, you know, democracy, democracy, It's not all that great. We wouldn't mind having a dictator as long as it's our friend Donald Trump. Oh, my gosh. Boy, are they in for a rude awakening (laughs) if Donald Trump becomes the dictator, whether as he puts it, dictator for a day, or as I think is more likely, dictator until the cheeseburgers and uh, and fries uh, end his life. 
you know, yeah. right before we started recording, we were talking about the difference between, you know, Joe Biden being an old man who, you know, has gotten a lot done and Donald Trump being an old man, who, like you said, is crazy and a criminal and um, who would be a dictator for the rest of his life. But I think a lot of people are wondering, going back to the Supreme Court um, case that's about to, I guess, be argued, um, if they uphold Colorado's ruling, what does that mean? Does that mean Trump is kicked off of all ballots? Is it the law in 50 states? Walk us through that possibility. Well, it means he won't be qualified to take the oath as president. However, some states may decide, and this would be kind of crazy, but they have the authority under Article 2 of the Constitution and the 12th Amendment to decide how to pick their own electoral slates for the Electoral College. They may decide that in our primary, we want everybody to be able to run, whether they are qualified to hold office or not. We'd perfectly happy to have Donald Duck run for president. Uh, they could do that. It would create some degree of chaos, but in the end, the likelihood that that would eventuate is not very great. I think if the U.S. Supreme Court agrees on the basis of the elaborate trial held in Colorado, that there was an insurrection, that Donald Trump engaged in it, and that that disqualifies him from the presidency, I think odds are that Either the Republican Party would wake up, smell the coffee, and decide that they better get a qualified candidate, whether it's Nikki Haley or somebody else, uh, or if they run him for president, he will suffer an ignominious, overwhelming defeat because there will be many states in which he's not on the ballot, and a Supreme Court decision saying that whether he's on the ballot or not, regardless of the outcome, he cannot constitutionally hold office. That is such a terrifying prospect because if anyone thinks that there will be a civil war if he's kicked off the ballot uh, everywhere, imagine if he appears on the ballot in some states and wins those votes and then can't be inaugurated. That is it's absolutely crazy, but we shouldn't allow our political second guessing about which form of chaos is worse? Right. Determine our fidelity to the Constitution. This is a good one where doing what is right, what the law demands, is sensible because nobody can guess what kind of chaos would ensue. Right. There's no way that Donald Trump on the ballot is going to result in an election that smoothly moves into the next phase. Yeah. He will not accept a loss for an answer. He's made that clear. Any election in which he's not declared the winner is by definition election that he will claim is stolen. He's the very example of a bad loser. He doesn't know how to lose. Also turns out he's not a very good winner. When he defeated Nikki Haley in New Hampshire, first thing he did was make fun of her dress and say that, say that uh, she should... Anybody who supports her is going to be on his enemies list and will never get any benefits from him again. That's what it means for this guy to hold power. It will be government by revenge. It will be government not for the people, of the people, by the people, but of, by, and for Donald Trump and what's best for him and best for his family. You know, I just was with um, Ali Velshi, and he was speaking about his new book, and as he was telling stories, there was one that was particularly terrifying, and it was about his experience um, or his family's experience, really, 
of the change in laws against because he's uh, from Indian heritage, he's considered uh, colored in South Africa. And at first they made a law that said you couldn't do X. And then it was, well, you can't do Y. And basically at the end, you couldn't do anything. And um, they put his family's business out of business. And it sounded like, you know, 1939 in Germany. And it's a lesson that we need to learn here is that Donald Trump isn't running on, we're going to eliminate all of this, but he's running on, well, we'll change one thing. And once he gets into power, it's going to be, um, you know, you can't own a shop. You can't work in a shop. You can't go to a shop. You have to stay in the ghetto. And I, it's very terrifying to me. But it is. And I I had a different background from Ollie's, but I was born as, as the son of Jewish-Russian refugees in Shanghai, China. Wow. It was the wow. only place on the planet where any of us could go safely. Um, my father was then interned as a prisoner in a Japanese prison camp because wow. he had become an American citizen years earlier when he traveled from China to California and then back again. So I sort of know what it's like to grow up at a time and in a place where, you know, a bunch of thugs can just grab your dad and put him in prison or wow. in a place where... The only reason that we managed to survive is that the that the plans to kill the Jews in Shanghai just didn't quite materialize. A lot of people have no idea what it is like to live under the thumb, under the boot of people who have power over you, where you don't have any power over your own life. Women in America are learning that, certainly, because they are told in one state after another, we can determine what goes on in your body. A lot of people are being told in this country, we can decide what goes on in your bedroom. If you don't like that, if you don't like the idea of the government being the boss of you, I remember my kids growing up saying, you're not the boss of me. If you <laughs> like that idea, you really should not like the idea of Donald Trump as dictator for a day, even if for some reason you believe the myth that he got something good done as president. He didn't, by the way. But even if you believe that, the price that you would pay with this guy in charge is just incalculable. So it's absolutely crucial that young people, especially people who don't often exercise or as much as they, as some of us wish they would exercise their precious right to vote, it's crucial that they vote and not waste their vote on one of these crazy third party options RFK Jr., um, just ridiculous, the, the no, no labels people. They may claim that they're not in there as stalking horses for Donald Trump, but it is clear that the more votes they get, the more likely it is that Trump will win, not necessarily because we know how those who vote for a third party would have voted, but because there's a risk that the whole thing will get thrown into the House of Representatives if nobody gets 270 electoral votes. And in the House of Representatives, though not all your viewers might know this, each state has one vote, each state delegation. And as long as there are more Republican state delegations in the House than Democratic, that's likely to happen even if the Democrats take over the House of Representatives. 
if there are more Republican delegations, we'll be in terrible shape because one delegation, one vote, and Trump becomes the next president. I'm sure we can do an entire episode on the Electoral College and just how flawed it is. Um, but I, I have to make one point, which is, I kid you not, when you were talking about power over, I, I don't know if you're familiar with um, Brene Brown, but she does a lot of emo um, research on emotions and different theories. And she wrote an article recently that talked about the di distinction between power over, which is basically rooted in fear and seeks to divide versus power with to and within. And it was just such an interesting piece. And we'll include that in our show notes, because I think it's just the difference between a leader like President Biden, who I really think does try to empower as many people as he can, versus a leader like President or former President Trump, who seeks to you know, assert his power over other people. And right. it makes a huge difference. Um, but I know, Jill, you had a question. Um, well, I want to try to move to um, Supreme Court reform because um, our guest was on the committee that President Biden put together to look at that. And um, I, I'm, I just want to end this other segment with saying voting is important. I, I agree uh, that Donald Trump should not be on the ballot, that the Supreme Court, the uh, Constitution, 14th Amendment is absolutely crystal clear and that there are no arguments that have been presented that changed my mind on that. But um, I, I don't wanna miss the opportunity to ask you about what the committee that was put together did. I mean, from what I understand, they looked at term limits, age limits, increasing the court size to at least reflect how many circuit courts there are because at the time nine was set, there were nine circuits. There's now 13. And so that would be one way to even the playing field uh, for the two stolen seats and um, and also give us a chance for some new appointments. Do you think that there's any chance for Supreme Court reform? And what do you think the best way to do it would be? Well, thanks for asking about that commission, Jill. It was a group of 35 people, bipartisan. Uh, we spent a year discussing, deliberating, holding hearings. We had a great many witnesses, took a lot of time. We produced a report that is, I guess, gathering dust on the on the resolute desk in the Oval Office. It doesn't look like President Biden is going to do much with it because I think from the very beginning, he's been skeptical about changing anything significant about the Supreme Court. That's the one place, one of the very few places where Joe Biden and I, who've known each other since the mid-1980s when I started advising him, have not seen eye to eye. I have thought that it's very important for the Supreme Court to be brought into the 21st century. It needs to be bigger. We have a much bigger, more diverse country now than we did when nine seats was the norm. There's nothing magical about the number nine. It isn't even a prime but in any event, the uh, whereas 13 at least is that, uh, nothing magical about the number nine, nothing in the constitution that requires it to stay at nine. No argument that anybody on the commission or that testified to the commission made explaining why it would be unconstitutional to change it. It is the smallest court with anything like this power in the entire world. Really? Uh, and it is also, 
in a country that has a constitution that's harder to amend than any other, um, the court's power is very much greater than it is in other countries. Mm -hmm. So the case for expanding it, even setting aside what you referred to about the stolen seats, the fact that Merrick Garland was denied even a hearing, you know, all of the reasons for thinking that that the Kavanaugh and uh, and Gorsuch and Barrett appointments are of dubious legitimacy. Despite all of that, it seems to me the case for expanding it is very great. And yet on that commission, knowing that we really wouldn't get very far that way, only about five of the members of the commission really ended up believing that that was the way to go. Hmm. Why is that? And why is uh, Biden skeptical? Well, I guess it's it's habit. You know, people were very dubious when FDR tried to pack the court, as they call it. Yeah. In this case, it would be unpacking the court. But it's very easy to confuse the historic episodes to make it look like this is political manipulation or payback, whereas it really would be simply adjusting things to make them more consonant with modern needs. But that's not the way everybody sees it. People tend to, out of habit, think that the plan that FDR had to expand the court, um, which the Senate, even though it was very much in FDR's hip pocket on other issues, the Senate flatly rejected, pushed back against. Uh, there just isn't the appetite yet to take that up. I think there's also the fear of tit for tat, the idea that if we expand it to 13, the next time the Republicans can hold, you know, hold full power, they'll expand it to, to 15 and then 17. Even if it became a court of 23, there's nothing bizarre or strange about that. And besides the idea that we better not do something because the other side, when they have the power, will do something similar, it's kind of stupid. The fact is they'll do it whether we do or not, yeah. you know, and the idea that we should hold our, uh, you know, hold our fire because they'll be nice when they get the opportunity is incredibly naive. More popular was the idea of term limits. It's really bizarre in a country like this to have people with such power um, hold it for life, um, regardless of whether that, as in the case of Clarence Thomas, for example, they flagrantly violate the conflict of interest rules that that in fact by statute bind all judges including justices um, it's really odd to have them serve for life but the difficulties of term limits turn out to be much greater institutionally and constitutionally than the difficulties of expanding the court because there's a very powerful argument it's not slam dunk, but there's a pretty powerful argument that under the Constitution, when you are named a justice of the Supreme Court, you get to serve for life as long as you are not guilty of committing an impeachable offense. And simply making you a federal judge sitting on lower courts and thereby no longer a Supreme Court justice Whereas some people think that that is consistent with life tenure, a lot of people think it isn't. And in the end, it would be up to the current Supreme Court to decide whether a mere statute putting term limits, even if it, they were staggered and phased in, 
whether that was constitutional. And guess what? The odds that the current court would say it's perfectly okay to put term limits on the people that you add to the court are pretty low. And yeah. therefore, it would require a constitutional amendment. And that's extremely hard to achieve and not likely to be achievable in this area. So term limits, though they are more popular with groups like the one that President Biden put together on this commission, just don't seem to have much staying power. More technical changes, uh, things that would require the court to be more transparent when it renders decisions on the so-called shadow docket, emergency rulings, uh, making it harder for the court to do things like like decide without explaining what they're doing, those changes are more likely to come about. And in particular, changes from the current system where the court's proceedings can be heard on a live stream, which is only something done in the last several years, to something where they're actually televised, which I think would be a good thing. That mm -hmm. is more likely to be done in the foreseeable future. After all, decisions that affect all of our lives, like the one that the court is going to make on the basis of the hearing on February 8th on whether Donald Trump is disqualified, what conceivable good reason is there for the American people not to be able to watch that hearing? Because all of the justices ask questions. Those of us who are in the know and can recognize their voices know who is asking what, but a lot of the people are going to be in the dark. Why not turn on the lights and let us watch? The idea that some of the justices are going to, you know, be embarrassed or make funny faces or or play to the cameras, that's silly. They're grown-ups. They can already, you know, they can already try to be impressive in the questions they ask. So big deal. I think that's the kind of change that is more likely to happen. Absolutely. And I am I just want to say cameras in the court and the Equal Rights Amendment are my two current passions and not just in the Supreme Court, but in every court, every trial court in every state and in right. every federal court. Like, why shouldn't we have been able to watch the, uh, yes. the closing arguments in E. Jean Carroll versus Trump? I mean, that, that was an historically important trial, even though it's only about civil damages. It's not one of the criminal cases. They certainly should be televised, including the federal criminal cases. Absolutely. It won't be. But in this case, even though it was just about whether he, as president, tried to destroy the reputation of this remarkable woman by denying her story that he had assaulted her sexually, by calling her a liar, by constantly pretending that he didn't even know who she was, by saying she wasn't my type, even though he, in a picture, couldn't tell the difference between her and Marla Maples, his earlier wife. Why shouldn't we have been able to see that trial? What was on trial was truth. What was on trial was the abuse of, of human beings. We should have been able to see what a monster he was. I, I want to go back to um, the Supreme Court reform conversation really quickly because we talked about this decline in public opinion um, that the Supreme Court is facing. And, you know, short of short of any of those reforms that you talked about, are there any other ways that, you know, either the Supreme Court can enact reforms or maybe Congress can step in? Any other thing that can be done to revive public support at this moment? 
Well, Judge Michael Ludig, a very distinguished former federal judge, a conservative um, circuit court judge, and I have both testified that the Constitution certainly permits Congress to impose and make enforceable a code of ethics. Right now, there are certain ethical rules that are supposedly binding even on the justices, as I mentioned a few minutes ago. 28 U.S. Code Section 455, for example, says that a justice must recuse if that justice's spouse has a skin in the game, is involved in a controversy. But we know that, that uh, Justice Clarence Thomas's wife is very much involved in the insurrection, was part of the planning for the insurrection, and yet he's unlikely to recuse despite the mandate of Section 455 in cases that come before the court involving the insurrection. There's nothing to prevent Congress from imposing a regime that would be enforceable. Inspectors general can be imposed on all branches of government. And yet the furthest that the court, that, that Congress has so far been willing to do is to make some rather pathetic proposals to tell the court to enact its own enforceable code. What does that mean? In fact, Ludig and I both testified that we thought it was unconstitutional for Congress to tell the court to make laws. Congress is supposed to make the laws, including laws regulating the court. But I think the best way for the court to regain credibility is for it to start acting like a court. Justices like Kagan and Jackson and Sotomayor have more in sorrow than in anger said that their colleagues departed from that norm when they overruled Roe v. Wade, not for any reason other than that they now had the votes. I mean, that's what it came down to. There was nothing new under the sun in the 50 years since Roe v. Wade that explained why women should no longer have control over their bodies. We didn't discover miraculously something new about the fetus. Everybody knows the fetus is a developing future human. Duh. <laughs> that, you know, what significance you want to attach to that is a matter of values. And whether the majority can impose its values on women to the point of controlling their lives and their bodies is an eternal question. The only thing that changed between 1973 and the time that the court decided Dobbs was different faces on the court. When the court makes that the determining factor, that is what undermines confidence in it as a court. Yeah. If the court starts acting like a court, it will get the respect that a court deserves. So let, let me follow up on that because you mentioned the role of Congress in making laws. And I, I want to go to what's happening in Texas, because in that situation, you have the state doing things that I believe the Constitution assigns to other uh, federal branches. And just so that people understand the context, you know, you have a situation where Governor Greg Abbott placed wire uh, with buoys in the river, in the Rio Grande River, and was then ordered to take them out by the courts. And so he moved the wire to the land border and prevented federal agents from accessing uh, the border, which is, of course, their role. The Supreme Court um, had 
ruled that they had to move them. And now there's some debate in language about whether they're defying the Supreme Court or not. Uh, although last night I read a statement by the lieutenant governor, which sounded to me like direct defiance of the Supreme Court order. Um, and I want to know how broad you think the defiance is. Um, it seems to me in a way, Governor Abbott and the lieutenant governor are challenging our system of federalism, of states and federal, and how dangerous is this and what can and should President Biden do? It's a complicated question, um, Jill, not, not because the bottom line is all that difficult, but because the technicalities get a little difficult. I don't think Abbott has yet literally defied a court order in the sense of putting himself or any official of Texas in contempt of court. The U.S. Supreme Court did decide by a vote of five to three that an injunction of a lower court of preventing the U.S. Border Patrol from taking down the the uh, barbed wire that he had put in the in the in the Rio Grande, I guess, in order to basically rip people to shreds if they crossed the border without his permission, did rule that that injunction was to be dissolved five to four, no explanation. We know who the five justices were. They included the three liberals plus the chief justice plus Amy Coney Barrett. We know who the four were. They included Alito and uh, and, and Thomas and Gorsuch and, and Kavanaugh. We don't, however, know exactly what the rationale was. We know what the underlying theory is. As you point out, the underlying theory is that in our federal system, the borders are largely the business of the federal government. That's because the federal government has the right to enact under Article I a uniform rule of naturalization. And Supreme Court decisions over time have said that that means that federal law is supreme over state law when it comes to the rules about who can enter, under what circumstances, what's to happen to them, when they can seek asylum and the like. What Governor Abbott is basically doing is a reenactment of what a number of Southern governors did in the lead up to the Civil War. He's basically asserting a right of nullification of federal law. He is basically saying, we don't think you are doing a decent job of policing the border, so we're gonna take over for ourselves. Well, to begin with, that's not the state's role. If each state could decide that the national government in areas that are primarily entrusted to it under a constitution that says in Article 6 that federal law is supreme over state law when they conflict and when the federal government is acting within its jurisdiction. In a system like that, when each of the 50 states can say, well, federal law is supreme unless we think otherwise, we're not going to have a country. We're not going to have a United States of America. So that is a fundamental misconception, and it's what led to the dissolution of the country in the right. Civil War itself. It's certainly what led to standoffs between Governor Faubus and others who wanted to prevent the integration of the schools 
when federal courts said you've got to integrate them. In those cases, when it finally came to a direct violation of a district court order that schools, a certain school be integrated, the president of the United States finally intervened by sending the airborne into the states to escort the little black kids into these all white schools. And the governors who said, we're gonna stand in the schoolhouse door were told, no, you're not. Uncle Sam is stronger than you are. That's what Biden would and should do if there is that kind of standoff with Abbott. Let me ask you- not, That's did. not what a Trump would do. And besides the current situation is really especially ironic because Biden has now said he would sign the most restrictive immigration law, the one that is most protective of the border that anybody has ever proposed. It's exactly what the Republicans want. Why aren't they sending it to his desk to sign? Because Donald Trump said, I'd rather have an issue than a solution of the border crisis. And they are like lemmings willing to do his bidding give him a campaign issue to run on, namely, we've got chaos at the border, then actually give the president a law he could sign. Yeah. So, Lawrence, let me ask you whether this uh, rises to the level of direct defiance. And I'm old enough to remember when the uh, President Kennedy uh, nationalized the guard and escorted, uh, including my law school classmate, James Meredith, into the university. Um, but here's what Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick said, according to The Hill, the state will continue to build razor wire and other fencing on the US-Mexico border, despite a Supreme Court order last week allowing federal law enforcement to tear down state-erected barriers. Quote, we are putting up wire everywhere. Oh, hold on, it just... I'm saying we are putting up wire everywhere we can. He told Fox News's Martha McCollum on Monday, quote, we will continue. We will not stop. If they cut it, we will replace it. Well, that's a standoff on the ground, but it's not a judicial standoff. If someone were to bring a lawsuit under Section 1983 of, of, of 28 U.S. Code, someone were, sorry, of 42 U.S. Code, Section 1983 against the efforts that are going on to continue to put wire in place and he were and a lower court were to issue an injunction against him saying stop putting these wire fences in place and he thumbs his nose on that and says i'm going to do it anyway that would be defiance that's when you send in the troops that's when you send in the u.s marshals and that is when he can't get away with it. But if the courts fall short of ordering him not to do what he's doing, and if it's just whack-a-mole, the courts say, don't do X. And he says, okay, but I'll do Y. And then the courts don't respond. There's not a lawsuit that prevent him, that prevents the governor or the lieutenant governor from taking the next step. They can keep protracting the dispute. It's very much like the way Donald Trump keeps delaying justice in various cases, not quite defying something. Does that make sense or, am I, or is it too complicated? Uh, yes, I'm sorry. Um, I 
it makes sense, although I think there may be a difference without distinction when the court said the federal government has the right to remove it if they then just keep on replacing it. Seems to me that that's a close question of whether in any event, we are certainly in a dangerous situation where guns may be drawn to remove and replace and remove and replace. And it's, it's, to me, it's a very frightening thing. Um, And I don't disagree, Jill. It does seem to me some good lawyering could, could make the argument that it's a distinction without a difference that he's basically defying these orders. But I'm just saying that that you could dot the I's and cross the T's a little more fully in order to eliminate even the optical option of not quite defying the order. Draw the order more broadly. Order the governor and the lieutenant governor to do nothing that will interfere with the rights of people to cross the border in accord with federal law. Very interesting. We are running out of time. So I want to skip to our last question um, and ask you, we usually ask our guests their advice for students um, in any sort of particular field. But you mentioned um, your former student of yours, and I know that you've also taught people like President Obama and Jamie Raskin, and other really amazing people. And so I just want to ask you, what can we do, or I guess, advice to people who want to go into public service and, and what kind of does the law do and law school do to to help you know train those type of people that end up doing such amazing things? Well, Obama, for one, decided to go into community organizing first. He didn't start at the top. He started, you know, working at the community level. My advice to students would be to get involved in politics in every and, you know, in every way you can. Organize your community, organize students, make sure they vote, make sure they don't waste their vote. Find a role that you can maybe perform in a public way. Maybe there's an office you can run for. You don't have to be 35 to to be mayor. I've I've known people who've run for local offices, um, you know, in their 20s. It seems to me that just the fact that most politicians these days seem to be more interested in keeping their job than doing something for the community doesn't mean that public service is not still potentially the most noble of all callings. And if you want to help people and make your life worthwhile, I can assure you there's nothing that you can do that that will be more satisfying than helping other people in a, in a public way. Um, you know, I've done various things in my life. I've the thing I'm most proud of is teaching people to make a difference and doing things myself that help other people lead better lives. There's this cartoon that shows a guy on his deathbed and everybody is listening to his last words and he says, oh, I wish I had, I wish I had accumulated more stuff. That's <laughs> not what matters. You know, yeah. when it's all over, you want to look back and say, I'm glad I did things for people. Uh, I think it's never too never too soon to start. Wow. I know Victor said this would be our last question, but there's one just, and I, I know we're minutes away from ending, but um, I, as I learned when um, we were introducing you, you've been of counsel to Robbie Kaplan's firm. And one of the things that they are now doing is representing Renew Democracy in its work to unfreeze Russian assets to help Ukraine. And if you could just say 
you know, a sentence or two about that effort. Sure. Um, you know that Russia has committed serious war crimes in a war of aggression against Ukraine. And it's a war that is killing lots of innocent people. Ukraine desperately needs at least $400 billion in order to rebuild. Taxpayers in the West, in the United States and in Europe are getting, getting tired of supporting Ukraine. Unfortunately, they seem to have forgotten that their own future is indirectly on the line. But there is a way of helping Ukraine that wouldn't cost taxpayers a penny. And that is there's about $320 billion in frozen Russian central bank reserves, sovereign assets that have been frozen, about 5 billion in the US, about 320 billion in other countries. And none of that money is doing anybody any good. Russia is never gonna get it back because they're never going to themselves do what international law requires. And that is compensate the victims of their crimes. Yeah. And under international law, what that means is that the money that is frozen can be melted down, basically, and handed over to Ukraine. So the firm that I'm of counsel to, Robbie Kaplan's firm, representing a group called Renew Democracy Initiative, which is run by the former chess champion of the world, Gary Kasparov, did a detailed report published on September 17th of last year that's now really become pretty influential around the world, urging all of the countries that have this money to take steps to unfreeze it and to use it to help Ukraine. Just yesterday or today, a group representing the European Council uh, voted that it believed unanimously this was a good idea. I think it's indispensable. And I'm proud to be part of the Kaplan Law Firm that has helped spearhead the effort. And thank you for that and for all you have done in teaching Jamie Raskin. And there's my dog who's trying to get in. He approves of you too. Yes. Um, do, I very, his, do I have his vote? You have his vote for sure. And I, I for one, see Russia's attack on Ukraine as the prelude to its attack on other countries in Europe and to a threat to America. So I think we need to stop them and that this would be a good thing to do. So thank you for doing this and everything else. Yes, thank you for Thanks, Victor and Jill. Thank you. Thank you so much for watching or listening to this episode of iGen Politics with Professor Lawrence Tribe. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did and you learned a lot from it just as we both did. We will be back next week with a brand new episode of iGen Politics, so you don't want to miss that. But in the meantime, if you listen to us, be sure to follow us wherever you follow your podcast and also rate us and review us uh, on that platform as well, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, really wherever. Be sure to drop us a rating as we love to hear you and uh, it helps others find this episode as well. If you want to watch us, you can watch us at youtube.com slash Politicon, where you can see uh, many more uh, fun snippets from our conversation and Jill's pin, which is a must-see. Uh, so find us at youtube.com slash Politicon, subscribe to us there, like us, and leave us a comment there as well. Uh, thank you, everyone, and we will see you next week. And as Nicole Wallace always says, thank you for the gift of your time. 